So I'm here with Ray McGovern, and Ray moved to Washington from his native Bronx in the early 60s as an Army Infantry Intelligence Officer, then served as a CIA analyst for 27 years, from the administration of JFK to that of George H.W. Bush. His duties included chairing national intelligence estimates and preparing the president's daily brief, which he briefed one-on-one to President Ronald Reagan's five most senior national security advisors from 81 to 85. Oh, my goodness. So you're in the epicenter of geopolitics. I have been, and I've been trying to stay there. (laughs) Well, huge thank you for spending time with us today. The big, I don't know, in the US, but in the UK, every single day the headline news is what's happened in Israel and Palestine. So would you like to start with that, Ray? Sure. Uh, We can do a lot of background, but let me start with what's going on today. Um, The G7, uh, the gathering of the most wealthy nations, decided uh, that they uh, could not endorse a ceasefire, but might be open to a humanitarian pause in the genocide. Now, if that sort of grates on on you to hear a humanitarian pause in the genocide, that's why I say it so slowly, Sean. Incredible. So Tony Blinken, in trying to explain uh, why a ceasefire is just out of the question, he said this today, early this morning. Israel has repeatedly told us that uh, there'll be no ceasefire. And uh, we agreed uh, that we would not endorse a ceasefire. Uh, But the humanitarian pauses might be key objectives. Uh, Netanyahu, the uh, prime minister of Israel, has said humanitarian humanitarian pauses, a day here or a day there, a spot here, spot there to to let some supplies in. Uh, That that may be okay. But sotto voce, don't try to stop us from continuing the genocide. Now, Sean, I should should make clear that I use that term advisedly. Uh, It's written into international law. All the things that Netanyahu and his chief lieutenants have said are a textbook case of genocide. I'm old enough, you can tell from the color of my beard here, (laughs) I do have been alive during the entire World War II. No small, but alive, okay? <laughs> and I remember, you know, I remember the first genocide, which claimed six million Jews. Now, there are 2.3 million people in Gaza. It does, it, two million, is that not, is it, that not constituted genocide? There have to be six million? Well, let me tell you, Sean, that the law is also clear on that. It doesn't have to be the entire genus, the, the entire tribe or the entire people. It can be a substantial part of it. And two, two times 
that is, uh, the world uh, the world court has convicted Yugoslavia in that case twice of genocide. So it's not an idle law, and uh, it's just amazing uh, that the U.S. and Britain and other vassals in Western Europe have said, oh, okay, well, if the U.S. says we should continue this sort of, we should continue to support Israel in this, what are we to say? The U.S. always knows best. Well, uh, I fear what the eventual outcome of this will be. So, Ray, how would you advise the Israeli government then to deal with Hamas after the attack in early October? Because their side of it is that they have to go in and drop these bombs on these populations because Hamas is in tunnels and it's using the population as human shields and there's no way around it. What would you say to that side of the argument? Yeah, I would simply say the immediate need is for a ceasefire. Then we could work this stuff out, okay? Now, um, I was telling uh, a young person asked me, uh, Ray, could you please uh, give me a succinct, a little paragraph on what's going on. (laughs) So I started and, of course, didn't. It got more than succinct, but I I was alive. I was nine years old in 1948 when in New York, my part of New York City, the Bronx, there was great rejoicing. Oh, there were, there was euphoria because Israel had its own country, 1948, the creation of Israel. Nobody told me that there were people already there. Not only for centuries, for millennia. Okay, so what does that mean? I had to learn all this stuff later. Okay, there were people there. There were Palestinians there, and for people like Robert F. Kennedy Jr. to minimize the number of Palestinians there, he, he said recently that there are only. Uh, there are only about the 390,000 Palestinians in that area. Well, that's after after Israel drew, uh, drove out 750,000 Palestinians. And that's not a matter of contention. That's a matter of history. Either to Gaza or up to Jordan or Lebanon. They drove 750,000 Palestinians out of the country that they established, okay? So this goes back, in a word, this goes back 75 years. Now, uh, people say now, McGovern, you have to condemn what what uh, Hamas did. Brian, this may be, uh, Sean, this may be a little bit uh, hard to understand, but I'm in, not in the business of condemning things or justifying things. An intelligence analyst lays out the background, lays out the facts, and you make your own judgment as to whether this is justified or whether this should to be condemned, okay? So I'm not condemning Hamas no more than I'm condemning uh, the Russians for invading Ukraine. Uh, They had no other choice in my view, and I can adduce all the evidence necessary to prove that it's just that nobody will listen. So in both cases, the propaganda organs say, ah, this was unprovoked. <laughs> no, it was not unprovoked in the case of Ukraine, for sure. 
and 75 years of humiliation and being driven out of here. Many of those Palestinians have the keys to their homes that they inhabited back in 1948. So unprovoked? No, not unprovoked. Uh, justified to get away from that. I don't like violence. I certainly don't like innocent uh, civilians killed. Yeah, same here. I mean, what we're seeing here in the UK, we saw the horror of what happened in early October, and now we're seeing the horror of little kids get pulled out of the rubble, and our hearts go out to all of these people, these innocent civilians that are just, you know, unfortunately located in that part of the world. So do you think then that the US has a vested interest because, what was it, over $100 billion in aid, i.e., contracts i.e money to raytheon lockheed martin etc is this just a big uh, business bonanza for the military industrial complex <laughs> you put your finger on a large share of it sean uh well yes uh, these people will profiteer on whatever happens selling weapons hither and yon but more important is the the strange phenomenon that the U.S. and Israel are joined at the hip, okay? Um, who was it? Yeah, I remember back uh, George W. Bush deciding to attack Iraq uh, on false pretenses, the weapons of mass destruction and, uh, and supposed ties with al-Qaeda uh, by inference, uh, somehow responsible for 9-11, okay? Now, that was never true, okay? And part of the reason, part of the information he was getting, and part of the encouragement he was getting was from Israel. We know that, that's well established, okay? Now, um, so Israel has been an influencer of what the US does in terms of retaliation at that, at that point, Afghanistan, you know. Am I still here? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, you're fine, sorry. Keep going. This wouldn't be the only time I've been knocked off. Anyhow, <laughs> knocked off the TV, <laughs> I mean. Um, so, what am I saying here? Well, right before Iraq, uh, there was a very prominent advisor. He was the national security advisor to Reagan, to uh, Gerald Ford. You know, he, His name was General Brent Scowcroft, a quintessential discretion on his part. He would never talk to the press, except before the attack on Iraq, he did. And what did he say? He said, I have to warn you all uh, that uh, George W. Bush is uh, mesmerized, that's the word he used, mesmerized by, uh, by the Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, mesmerized and Sharon has our president wrapped around his little finger. Now, he said that to the Financial Times. <laughs> he said that deliberately to get the word out, the war in America. This war is coming and Israel is a long part of it, okay? What happened to him? Well, before he got canned, after the war, he said, you know, uh, this is even worse. This is... Uh, this is George Bush being uh, just so mesmerized uh, that uh, he can't really think for himself. Now, what does that mean? Well, that meant that 
that Scowcroft got uh, dismissed from his very prestigious job in the George W. Bush administration, but it also was a warning to the rest of us, hey, this is a very, very, very unpleasant and unsatisfactory relationship. Indeed, it's one that George Washington, <laughs> the first president of the United States, warned about the passionate attachment for the interests of some other country that don't really coincide with our own interests. He warned about that in his farewell address. He was right on, and he's been disregarded in re over the recent century. So we've got Israel supposedly mowing the lawn, and we've got Hamas wanting to wipe Israel off the map. You're saying, yeah, a ceasefire is necessary, which would end the civilian casualties. I agree with that. But does that fix anything in the long term when you've got both sides with such hatred for each other? Uh, what has to happen is uh, the protectors of Israel have to talk sense to them. Uh, the protectors of Israel are in Washington, London, to a certain extent, Berlin, Paris. Uh, you know, the word is injustice. Um, when you when you expel 750,000 people from their home, as was as what happened in 1948, uh, those people are due some justice. And uh, the apartheid, and I use the word advisedly, the apartheid regime in Israel needs to come to its senses. Now, people talk, well, there should be a two-state uh, two uh, resolution to this. I don't, I don't buy that. I mean, if we, uh, if we extol democracy, uh, then it should be one state. It should be one person, one vote. It should be a democracy in the true sense of the word. It should be people who are able to live together. And to the degree the Israelis feel superior to the Palestinians, they got to get off that, that tack. They have to cooperate. And it's sort of like what Chinese say. It's, it can be a win-win. I mean, nobody has to win this whole thing uh, completely, but Israel has to give in and has to say, look, uh, we're not going to get away with this anymore. Let's work out a sensible deal. Problem is that with U.S. giving Israel 110% support, so to speak, Israel has much less incentive to come to its senses. So with Jewish people being attacked or bad things happen to them in various countries around the world and then having this land where they were promised security and now this happening, does this mean that Netanyahu is finished because of what's happened because he didn't provide security for them because he's shown that it's fallible, his security apparatus is fallible? Well, Netanyahu is in deep kimchi, as we say, he's in deep trouble. Uh, he's not going to come out of this very well at all. He has a personal incentive to play upon the violent reaction within Israel, understandable as it is because of what Hamas did on the 7th of October. He has a vested incentive to play on that and continue the genocide. Now, why? Well, because if he is dethroned, if he loses his job, he's going to go before court and he might end up in prison. That's how personal a stake he has in this. 
I kid you not. The evidence is out there. The judiciary, to the degree it can work in Israel, will put him in jail. I mean, that's a lot of incentive. Uh, sometimes personal factors like this play real big roles in history. So that's against any resolution. What's for resolution? Well, you have Turkey, you have Iran, you have the Arab states uh, sort of uh, sort of threatening uh, to not allow uh, the Gazan episode to continue uh, without end. Uh, I think they've been discreet so far, uh, but who knows if this continues another week or so and another 10,000 Gazans are killed, uh, what will the pressures be? Not so much on, on these leaders, but on their governments to come in and honor the rhetoric, the, the acid rhetoric from Erdogan and Turkey and some of the stuff that the, the Iranian uh, leaders are saying. What will, what will they be impelled to do? Uh, my hope and my expectation is that it's smart enough not to want to rise to the bait. What bait? There are people in Washington who would just as soon have a little dust up or a big one, an armed conflict with Iran. That's clear, okay? Iranians know that, and they're really smart people, those guys. They're not going to rise to that bait, in my opinion, unless they absolutely have to, unless all the Palestinians in Gaza, two million of them plus, are, are about to be uh, purified, so to speak, or genocide done to them. So um, one thing that occurs to me that your, your viewers might be interested in, uh, there are two aircraft carriers, strike groups, they call them, with all associated destroyers and guided missiles and cruisers and all that kind of stuff in the area. In addition to that, there's a ballistic missile submarine U.S., Ohio class, which has not only strategic missiles capability, but also a vast array of cruise missiles that they could shoot at shorter distances. They're right there. Now, on the one hand, they're sitting ducks. Okay. I doubt that Erdogan or the people in Iran or anybody else is going to rise to that bait and shoot them up. Okay, so what are they there for? My view is this. Uh, Israel has a nuclear capability. Israel has between, well, depending on who you believe, between 90 and 200 uh, warheads, nuclear warheads. Uh, would Netanyahu be tempted to use one of these, maybe these little, little war, these mini nukes uh, in, in Gaza? Well, that seemed ridiculous until three days ago. One of his lieutenants said, yeah, we could do that. That would be one of the options. <laughs> this was one of the ministers in his government, okay? So what I think and what I hope is the case is that the U.S. is smart enough to tell Israel, look, for God's sake, uh, you can't survive if you use nuclear weapons because as soon as they see these things go off, the Iranians, Hezbollah, they have thousands of missiles. They're going to kill all... They're going to decimate all your city. So let us take care of it. Leave it to us. We've got a guided missile, uh, guided missiles and other strategic weapons on this submarine. 
I've got these two aircraft carrier groups. Leave it, please, please, please don't, don't even think of using your nuclear weapon. Now, why would that be? Well, because they're scared, <laughs> they're scared to death that they would. I mean, what's to prevent Netanyahu when in extremis if he's going to lose not only the war or he's going to lose his position and the government is going to lose his freedom and go into jail? What's to prevent him? The, the Samson option, pulling down a temple around him and everybody else. So I hope that's a sort of benign, uh, benign view of one reason why those uh, uh, aircraft carriers and submarine are in the area. But this happened before. That was when we were when we were dealing with Iraq the first time in the what 1991. Uh, the Israelis were under threat from Scud missiles in Iraq. As a matter of fact, some of them landed in in Israel, and we did all we could. We bent over backwards, say, please, 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 we'll we'll find those Scuds. We'll stop those Scuds. Please, <laughs> don't retaliate. Don't retaliate. We don't need Israel to come into this war in which we have gathered all manner of Arab allies to do to, to help us out see so please and we succeeded in doing that so i'm thinking back to those years and i'm thinking the same fears are existing today and that the americans are probably saying look we can handle th if things get out of hand please don't even think of using your nuclear weapon wow this is fascinating so you're saying that netanyahu has a vested interest in tapping into the psyche of revenge by keeping the bombing going, which could cause the whole situ situation to escalate. Is, is that what you're saying? That's, exa that's exactly right, Sean. Yeah. Uh, now, nobody's got a corner on the truth, but it seems to me from, from all I know that that's, uh, that's the reality. Sometimes these personal uh, uh, determinants are determining. <laughs> Did you watch the speech that the leader of Hezbollah gave the other night? I didn't watch it, but I did read it. And what's your interpretation of that? I think he's a very clever person. He's saying, look, this could get out of hand, but don't blame us. We're waiting in the wings. We're able to tolerate some, but not an awful lot of this stuff. And we're prepared as they are, I mean, Hezbollah is a very, very formidable military machine. And they got thousands of missiles. And they're right up north of Israel. So they should be a deterrent for, uh, for Israel to do even more damage in Gaza. But I have to tell you that it hasn't worked yet. Uh, what has worked is that their threat from the north has diverted uh, some 70,000 uh, IDF Israeli defense forces up toward that area to guard against an invasion of Israel, which takes away from what they can use in Gaza. And I, I should probably add at this point, you know, the Israeli army was said to be pretty very formidable. Well, not so. It's composed of 80% of reservists who do a year or two and then go back to civilian life. They're not trained for this kind of thing. Uh, if they if they uh, really are met by Hamas in Gaza City, they're going to take it on the chin. And what will that mean? Well, when reservists die, uh, there's more a hue and cry in the homeland that is in Israel proper. My God, 
my little my little Johnny has died. What's this all about? Why does he have to die? So I'm thinking that this may have an effect as well because of the very composition of the Israeli Defense Forces and because they're not likely to have an easy go of it when they when they intervene en masse. So how did Hamas outsmart Israeli intelligence? Because we hear about the Mossad and their achievements. If this was being planned for such a long period of time, how come there was no intelligence flowing about it? Well, there are two schools of thought here, Sean. Uh, one is that there was intelligence, uh, and it was given to the Israelis. And the Israelis, for some reason, discounted it or neglected it or just pushed it aside. Now, if you take that to the next step, you could say, well, the Israelis wanted this to happen so they could do what they're doing now. Now, that's a tenable argument. I don't buy it. I think it was a very real surprise. Uh, all the evidence I have is that Hamas decided not to use their cell phones. <laughs> a couple of years to prepare this. And they'd done this before without success. And they thought, well, they'd try this now to force the issue. Okay. Now, I think they were surprised at the success they had. And there were certain things that they hadn't expected, like that uh, dance party or that uh, carnival that was going on out there. They hadn't known that that was going on. So, uh, in a word, I think Hamas was except was itself surprised at the success that they had. Uh, and one of the main objectives here, of course, was to collect hostages. Okay, now why? Well, there are thousands and thousands and thousands. Of Palestinians in Israeli jails, some of them very young. Um, last time a Israeli captain, I think he was in the Israeli Defense Forces, was captured. He was exchanged for thousands, thousands of Palestinians in Israeli jails. So there's precedent for this. They want a lot of Palestinians released in return for these hostages. Now, whether that will work or not. Is, it remains to be seen, but that was one primary objective, and they did. They did collect, uh, well, I forget what the number is, 85 or 7, whatever it is, hostages. Now, there are some initial uh, initial talks going on in Egypt and elsewhere uh, to see if we get five, 10, 15 hostages out as a sign to get, get the tap open, uh, but the Israelis in that, uh, are not willing to buy just a token hostage release they want it all, and Netanyahu has made it clear that unless the hostages are least released, he doesn't say all, but the implication is all, that there'll be no ceasefire. There wouldn't even be little pauses in the bombing here and there and over there, as Netanyahu has said, to let desperately needed supplies in, like water and food and 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 gasoline to power the the things that don't work without electricity or with you know the the stuff that needs to power those hospitals and so forth in the absence of electricity which is largely shut down how are these hostage exchanges facilitated what's the ground operation uh actually uh it's the uae who's the focus of this interestingly enough a lot of these talks uh, take place 
under the auspices of UAE officials. Uh, of course, Hamas is there and the, well, the Israelis as well. So in my view, or as far as I understand it, uh, this is where the actual talks take place. Uh, that's not to eliminate the possibility that more is being done locally, but that has been the focus of the talk so far. So in the news in the UK, we're seeing a lot of mention of Iran. Uh, various pundits are saying, you know, Iran's sponsoring this, Iran's sponsoring that. Is that because they're trying to pave the way for the US to go into Iran under some kind of pretext? Uh, I fear that this is part of the motivation. Uh, it's an open secret that key policymakers in Washington, and I, sus I suspect in London as well, would like, would like to provoke Iran into open hostilities with the U.S. Hey, here's the Eisenhower aircraft carrier. Uh, it's, uh, it's more than three soccer fields or football fields in your country. F football fields long. I mean, <laughs> talk about targets, huh? Well, in my view, the Iranians are too smart for that, okay? And they, they know about these people who would like to get involved uh, in, a, in an open war. And they're not going to oblige them. And they're going to be very discreet about how they support things. Now, uh, the U.S. has made a big thing of Iranian control, Iranian control of uh, terrorists in Syria and in Iraq. Okay. Now, Iran has certainly supported them, probably funded them, maybe even given them weapons but that they control, do, do they say to these groups, now I want you to go attack this particular U.S. air base in Iraq now, uh, tomorrow? I don't think so. Do, do, do they say to the ones in Syria, look, uh, there are 900 U.S. service people up there in northern Syria. We want you to attack them on Thursday? I don't think so. But will they do it anyway? I think so. And that's when it's going to hit the fan, Okay. There are 900 U.S. service people up in northern Syria. What are they doing there? We know because the president of the United States has, has told us. This president was uh, the, the guy Trump, okay? Donald Trump. What did he say? Oh, they're up there to steal the oil. To steal the oil. His words. Hello. <laughs> Does President Bashar al-Assad of Syria allow that? No, he doesn't like that at all. How about the small compliment there on the eastern part of Syria, Al-Tanf? What are they doing? Oh, they're, they're a training moderate rebels, moderate rebels to go against ISIL. Does Bashar al-Assad ask them to be there? No. So now if these, these, these uh, terrorist groups supported by, by Iran uh, take off after these 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 presences. Uh, it's not much, but there's enough to have a real. You know, let's say they take out a hundred up in the north there that are supposed to be stealing the oil or protecting those stealing the oil. Well, there's going to be hell to pay. Then they'll try to blame Iran. Now Iran has been really careful, and so has Hezbollah. Okay, and so has Turkey. They've all said 
you know, we didn't know about October 7th. We didn't know what Hamas was going to do. It was a secret to us, too, okay? And so does the U.S. intelligence community. So to the degree the leaders of the U.S., the real Zionists, want to draw Iran into open hostilities, well, they have a lot going against that since everyone has at least disavowed the notion that they knew anything about what Hamas did on the 7th of October. So they're making a big deal in the news here about the link between Iran backing Hezbollah. Is that correct? Uh, Iran has close ties with Hezbollah. Correct, yeah. Matter of fact, uh, uh, they've been supporting them for years. Um, who, what is Hezbollah? Hezbollah is a legitimate political party within the Lebanese system. They're part of the Lebanese government, and they're armed to the teeth. Uh, they've got uh, a very formidable military force. They were the only ones that defeated the Israelis just, a, well, about five or six years ago, okay? It was a draw. Israel had to, re, had to regroup. So this is, this is one of the things that makes it very difficult for Israeli planners. Uh, if, if Hezbollah does more than it's doing now, and it's already shelling and it's already threatening, then they have a two-front war to continue with. Uh, with what? Well, they have some special forces, but most of them are just reservists that used to be running a dry cleaning shop or running a synagogue or something like that. They're not really as formidable as we all would like to believe. So you have Hezbollah, a real threat in the north. You have Gaza in the, in the west. And you have Egypt and the others surrounding the thing. And you have, most of all, Iran and, and Turkey. So this time... And this is what's unique, Sean. This time, the correlation of forces has shifted. In other words, it used to be that the U.S. and Israel could pretty much work their will, right? Now it's just the opposite. Not only do you have a well-armed Hezbollah, not only do you have a cranly well-armed uh, Iran, they don't have a nuclear warhead, but they don't need them. They got such sophisticated missilery and other armaments that they, they have already a deterrent from Israel, except in extremis if Israel wants to use a nuclear weapon. So you have all kinds of people, including Saudis now, who are talking to the Iranians. It's really, really changed. So what does that mean? Well, that means that the U.S. is totally isolated uh, together with your folks in the UK, as usual, some of the vassals in, in Western, in Europe, and uh, and Israel. You know, if you look at it closely, Sean, it's really very disquieting. Uh, you have, um, well, people talk about evolving from a uni, unipolar world after the war, the war, World War II, for me, okay, and after the fall of the Soviet Union, okay, a unipolar world dominated by the United States. That's what it was, okay? Now, they talk about a, a multipolar world evolving. And that, of course, is also the case. That's true now. But I prefer to look at it in a bipolar way, <laughs> not the psychiatric bipolar. But here we have, look at them, the lily white West, personified in NATO. Look at NATO. 
what's distinctive about all those NATO countries? They're white, okay? And you have Turkey, which is sort of on the borderline. They're sort of getting a little dark, but what you have the lily white West plus Israel against the rest of the world. Now, that's not a healthy situation, okay? It's bipolar in the sense that the rest of the world is all people of color, okay? And there is a racist element here. I mean, the people of color feel there is, and there is. So you have the little light west, and then you have 80% of the rest of the people, most of whom are people of color. Uh, even the Russians now have been blackened to the extent <laughs> that they're de facto or de facto people of color. So what does that mean? Russia, China, Indonesia, South Africa, Brazil, all these Iran, all these people cooperating now in a way they never have before. Uh, it introduces a degree of unbalance, but it also introduces a degree of volatility and danger because the guys in Washington don't get it. They still think they're exceptional. They think they're indispensable. And when the president of the United States, as he did 10 days ago, quotes Madeleine Albright, Secretary of State for Bill Clinton, and says, you know, she had it right. We're the sole indispensable country in the world. We have to lead here, okay? Now, what else did Madeleine Albright say? Well, when she was interviewed by Leslie Stahl, a big interviewer back in the day, okay? Uh, Leslie Stahl was was understandably disturbed at the fact that 500,000 Iraqi children under the age of five were dead because of U.S. sanctions on Saddam Hussein. And she, she had a, her, her brow was furrowed. And, and she said, now, Madam Secretary, 500,000 children, do you think that's worth it? And... Madeleine Albright, as you may recall, said, yeah, that's that's worth it. We, we agree that it's worth it. My God. Okay. So here, I mean, that's, that's what people remember. But here is the President of the United States invoking the memory of that same Madeleine Albright who coined the indispensability notion. Well, these guys still think they're indispensable, except maybe they have to take orders from Israel because as Blinken said this morning, the Israeli told us, no ceasefire, maybe some little humanitarian things to interrupt this genocide, but no ceasefire. So indispensable, except for the Israelis, we'll, we'll help them and uh, they're part of this indispensable orbit. That ain't gonna last very long. I would give it another four weeks before that falls apart. So do you think that grandiosity is a function of America having the deepest pockets when it comes to military spending? I mean, last time I looked, the entire increase in American military spending was greater than Russia's entire budget for military spending. So doesn't that give Israel an edge as well with, with having that financial resources behind it? Of course, yeah. The, the irony, of course, is that the U.S. suspends, for example, close to a half billion dollars, a half billion with a B, for one F-35 fighter. 
which has difficulty flying in the dark or in the rain or <laughs> I exaggerate, but just a little bit, okay? It's still not fully functional, okay? So that's what the U.S. has been investing in. What have they been neglecting? They've been neglecting basic instruments of warfare, such as such as they used in my day, okay? In my day, I trained with the 155 millimeter howitzers and artillery pieces and the 105 howitzers, okay? What did that mean? They needed shells and they needed 155 millimeter shells, okay? And so did we produce them? Well, produce them up the gazoo. <laughs> we didn't get producing them, okay? They were always there because there was a Soviet threat, right? Now, what happened after the Soviet Union fell apart? That's about 30 years ago, right? Well, why, why make 155 millimeter artillery shells? I mean, uh, the Soviet Union has fallen apart. The Soviet military is not amount to anything. There is no threat from the from what or left of the Soviet Union, namely Russia. No threat. Okay, 1991, three decades, still no threat. Now, if as many of these ideologues uh, in, insist, Russia was a threat, and after Ukraine, Russia can take Poland and then the Baltic states. And, I mean, that's. That's rubbish, as you guys would say in, in England. Rubbish, pure rubbish. You'd think that if people were afraid of that, they would they would make preparations. You don't have to be a vestal virgin to be ready, but you, if you're a military guy, you have to you have to produce the shells necessary to counteract this. If you don't believe in your dear heart, in your heart of hearts, that there's any threat, you don't build our shells. So, what's the outcome of this? About two months ago, uh, Biden called his advisors around. Now, I, I wasn't there, but I know how these things go. I worked at those circles. Like he said, "Now, Ukrainian, I just got the Ukrainian ambassador says they they need one five five millimeter shells, so let's give them some more." And Austin, Secretary of Defense, says, "Well, um, we already gave them a lot. Yeah, but they they say they're firing them off every day. They need some more." Well, Mr. President. We don't, we're real low on it ourselves. Well, how about NATO? Have them. Well, they don't have any either. Oh, well, what do we got? Well, we got these uh, pellets that we, you know, these, these, these 155 pellet things. Well, well, give them them. Okay. They give them them. And then for the tanks, the Abrams tanks, well, how about depleted uranium shells? Yeah. Well, that can mess up. A well, we've given them too. Now, why are you mentioning all this? Mention all this because they're going to run out of those two, okay? There's no money. There's no money in producing 155 millimeter shells. The money is in producing flyers that won't fly, okay? So, what are they going to do? Are they going to say, oh, well, to prevent the Russians from winning in Ukraine, yeah, that's what we'll do. We'll do a little mini nuke, okay? And that'll turn them back. That'll well, the Russians are afraid of that. That's why you see these. That's why you see these statements coming out from people as high as the previous president Medvedev. Okay, saying, "Look, look, <laughs> don't even think of using uh, nuclear weapons, no matter how many. It's not going to work." Matter of fact, you know what he said at one point about 
five weeks ago now, he says, look, you ought to, you and the West ought to say big prayers. You ought to pray that Russia doesn't lose, okay? Because Russia has this nuclear capability and we will use it rather than lose. So if you think that you have designs on Russian territory to include what is now Russian territory in Ukraine, according to our calculations, uh, pray pray that you, you don't put our backs to the wall because sure as can be, we're going to use them. Now, do I think that's likely? No, because we're not going to be pushing the, the Russians back to the wall. The back to the wall is Zelensky and his inept advisors who are just who have lost the war already and will appeal to Washington to do something else. And we don't have any more 155. Matter of fact, we found some 155s. Oh, but we're going to give them to Israel. My God. No, so that's that's the latest here. So this is just it, it's it's uh, it's so volatile. I've seen a lot of volatility. OK, but I've never seen so many loose cannons running around, not only in Ukraine, not only in Gaza, but out in the Far East, where we're challenging the Chinese in a an area they consider to be an existential threat, where they consider that we reneged on our promise to accept Taiwan as part of China, which we did promise. Now we're arming Taiwan to the teeth and threatening to, to do whatever in the Far East. And the Chinese are looking on in wonderment and they're trying to trying to figure out, well, right now, should we let Xi go to San Francisco and make believe that the world is 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 okay? I mean, or should we keep them home and say, you know, a plague on your APAC, your Asian summit here. This makes no sense. You guys are crazy. It's going to be interesting because there are arguments for and against Xi coming to uh, to San Francisco this month to be at the APEC summit. I'm intrigued as to how those deliberations will go and whether they'll say, oh, yeah, it's worth going just to just to see if you could talk to Biden and say, hey, hey, Joe, what's four and four? And if he comes up with eight, then we'll be able to make our own conclusions. But if he doesn't, then we're even more worried. So you talk about volatility, and it seems every time one of these situations arises, people are prophesizing that it, it's going to escalate into World War Three. In terms of Israel-Palestine, does that is the route to a world war? Is that um, Hezbollah, Iran? Iran is a Russian client state. Russia gets involved, and America's already involved back in Israel. Is is that the steps? Yeah, those are a lot of steps that have to be taken. Uh, I'm more relaxed than many of my colleagues, not relaxed, but I'm thinking that there's so many such steps that people for their own, for their own security will shy away from the worst. Now, I cite Turkey and I cite Iran in that case. But Turkey also has economic interests in Israel. I mean, they, they sell them 40% of the fuel that they need. So there's an incentive on a lot of those people in that area not to rise to the bait. Aircraft carries are really big targets, okay? But don't do it. Uh, now, it would be different if Israel had a better chance of winning in Israeli terms in Gaza. They don't this time. That's the big difference, okay? 
they have challenges there that uh, from not only from Hamas, but from the people who are pledged to to help Hamas. Now, you would expect Hezbollah to to ramp up what they're doing in the north, uh, maybe draw another 100,000 Israeli troops up that way. What's left in Gaza? A bunch of newly recruits from the reserves and a lot of people sending word home to Israel proper. Johnny and Ivan have perished uh, in, in Gaza. Lots of people asking questions then. I see a lot of steps necessary uh, before it becomes a World War III. And I think that, uh, that Iran especially has the oil weapon. Uh, they have uh, lots of non-kinetic ways to make it very, very painful for not only the U.S., but for Europe. And uh, I think they'll resort to those. At least I fervently pray that they do before they rise to the bait and start taking off against an aircraft carrier, however lucrative and however big a target it is. What do you think China's attitude towards this is? You know, they look on, as I say, in in bewilderment, uh, wonderment, I would say. Uh, they don't they don't understand. Uh, well, <laughs> I think they have come to understand. Uh, remember in March of 2021, when Biden was just after the inauguration, the first thing that happened was they invited the Chinese to come to talk. And the Chinese were very obliging. They came to Anchorage in, in Alaska, U.S. territory. And what did Blinken and Sullivan do? <laughs> they told them, look, we have a new rules-based international order. You won't find it in Wikipedia because we just made it up. But it means what we say goes. We make the rules. Understand that? <laughs> Chinese, my God, do these guys have no sense of history? That's exactly what the British used to say to us for a whole century. You know, <laughs> forget about it. And the thing ended very badly. Now, they didn't learn anything from that because they're still talking about this rules-based international order. And the, the Russians are making fun of it as well as the Chinese. The, the Chinese can't be kind of dismissive of all this. They see real threats. And that's why when U.S. warships come very close to, uh, to Chinese waters, uh, they send their warships to cut them off. Is that proper? No, it's not proper. Is it a warning? Yeah, it's a warning. And suppose they collide. I think the attitude in China is, so what are you going to do? Uh, you're only 6,000 miles away in San Diego or, or you can, maybe from, from Hawaii. What are you going to do about it? This is our neighborhood, you know? I had to laugh. At one point, Jake Sullivan, uh, speaking as the National Security Advisor, talked about, he was asked about the danger of Chinese inroads in Cuba. And he said, the Chinese are not going to make any inroads in our ocean, in in our sea, in the Caribbean, or anything like that. Well, (laughs) the Chinese, understandably, have the same notion about the U.S. making any inroads uh, in the South China Sea, the East China Sea, 
Taiwan Strait. So why does the U.S. do that? Well, as you say, Sean, there's a lot of money in building naval ships and all that kind of stuff and fortifying Taiwan. And I mean, my God, it's really awful. But these things come very much into the decision-making process. And, you know, I, uh, I remember Eisenhower. He wasn't a bad president. And uh, when he left, of course, he warned about the military-industrial complex. And uh, he said, you know, uh, whether wanted or unwanted, they are accruing such power uh, that they endanger our democracy. So be aware. Now, we know that in his speech, he had written military-industrial congressional complex. And that was <laughs> congressional was crossed out. And we never found out who crossed that out. But uh, his granddaughter, a uh, wonderful mm. person, uh, she told us, now I know, she said, Ike did that himself. Why? Well, because he needed to get a couple things through Congress still. <laughs> okay. But you know what it's become? I've, I've got this little acronym. The Mickey Mat. It sort of rhymes with Mickey Mouse. It's the military industrial congressional intelligence media academia think tank complex. Mickey Matt. Now, why do I say media as if in all capital letters? Because media is the cornerstone. If you don't control the media, then the military industrial complex doesn't work. And Eisenhower said that specifically. What he said was this, the only antidote to the uh, dangerous accretion of power on the part of the military industrial complex is a well-informed citizenry. Okay. We ain't got a well-informed citizenry and of course, neither do you all in the UK. And that's, that's why media right in the middle of the Mickey mat is so crucial. Who controls the media? The rest of the Mickey mat, right? So, you know, to, to, to crack this nut, we, we need, need a resurgence of, of people who know what's going on. That's why I always appear on shows like yours, because we spread some truth around. Who knows? Maybe people will get, get sensitized and say, you know, this is a racket. War is a racket. And we're the ones that are suffering from it because we could use that money to help uh, with the poor people in our country and to help in all manner of other ways rather than building aircraft that cost a half billion dollars apiece. And our hearts go out to all the civilians in Israel and Palestine who are just being massacred and classified as collateral damage so these racketeers can make all this money. Ray, it's been absolutely fascinating speaking to you. Real honor to speak to someone with so much experience and knowledge on these subject matters. And for the viewers who've watched this, can you let them know where they can find you and support you online, please? Sure. Yeah, I, I'm on Twitter, uh, at Ray McGovern. And I have a website uh, that my son has constructed. It's called raymcgovern.com. 
Uh, I'm glad you asked because he really berates me if I forget to mention that. And he always says, he always says, Sean, look that when you mention a website, always add, if you don't get it, you don't get it. But I'm far too humble to mention that on air, Sean. So, you know, I won't, I won't say it. Well, send the links over by email and we will include the links as well below the video. So let us know what you thought about this in the comments, please. And huge thank you to Ray for joining us. Cheers. Thank you, Sean. Cheers to you.